0: I invite you to stand with me now as we turn our attention to the word of God, and we're going to be considering verses 9 through 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all of the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our opportunity that we have to gather as your people of God here in this local church to worship you, to read your scripture, to pray together, to celebrate new life in Christ through the waters of baptism. It has already been a wonderful morning together. Now, God, as we turn to your word, would you instruct our hearts we recognize that we are still learning to walk and that your word provides the instructions for us to learn how to do so more and more in the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Would you help us now, we pray, as we approach your words with reverence and awe, desiring for your Holy Spirit to continue to change our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Our sermon in these four verses this morning is entitled, The Way We Should Walk. I know some of you, I was very tempted for the Aerosmith song, Walk This Way, but I'm not gonna do it. Some of you know my inclinations. When you were a small child, you learned how to walk. You don't remember it. At least, I don't remember it. I can't imagine any of you remembering it. You, your parents likely remember it. You certainly have watched others, if not even children in your own household, others outside of it, learn how to walk. While it seems like something that happened so long ago for so many of us, even beyond our memory, as we've experienced that in the lives of small children, here's what we know. It does not happen overnight. Can you recall trying to teach our oldest son to walk, who was born premature, and so because of that, there were multiple developmental milestones that we were told early on were just going to take a lot longer? We thought he would never He did. Many of you parents have experienced that. You just thought, you looked at other kids and you thought, look how good they're doing. This one is never going to get there. And they do. But it doesn't happen overnight. There's stages, right? They first learn to scoot themselves and crawl a little bit. They start pulling up on the furniture. There's one wobbly step and then two wobbly steps. And the next thing you know, you can't find them because they're running around the house. And then there's bumps and bruises and falls along the way because it's never easy to learn how to walk. Well, Paul is continuing here in this fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians to talk about the way we walk, being a good metaphor for our sanctification, that process that we all go through in the Christian life of putting off sin and putting on Jesus. And just as little children struggle uh, mightily at times learning to walk and there are setbacks and falls and bumps and bruises along the way and there are tricks to learning how to do so successfully, the same is true for how we walk day by day year after year, following Jesus in this world. Last week, as we took up this fourth chapter and began to think about sanctification, there was a general call to sanctification and then a very specific challenge, one that Paul had known was necessary for him to pass on to this church. And that is the culture around them was inundated with wrong thinking about sexual conduct. And he called them to a biblical sexual ethic. Now, though, he's gonna continue in this train of thought, this call to walk in a certain way. And we're going to see two calls to walk one is how we walk amongst one another, and then the other is how we walk amongst people outside of the faith in our community but nonetheless, he is continuing in this same subject. This is all still pointing towards sanctification. Our walk in Christ. There will be much today that is very practical, almost as if we are teaching children how to put one foot in front of another. First, walking in brotherly love. Verse nine begins with an introductory statement that gives us an idea of what is happening at this phase in the letter. The first two words there in our English translation of the Bible is now concerning. Paul is introducing in this this section about sanctification He's turning from what he himself wanted to tell them, inspired by the Holy Spirit certainly, but that Paul had recognized was going to be a challenge for them, biblical sexual ethic, to likely questions that they had sent, subjects that they had raised when Timothy visited on the instruction of Paul and brings word back to him. That's why he turns now his attention by saying, now concerning, these are likely questions that the Thessalonian church would have sent to Paul. Could you imagine having Timothy there in your presence and they longed to see Paul? We we know from the text that they longed to see Paul and Paul longed to see them, but now they have a messenger from him, someone checking in on them, who's going to go and see the apostles. Certainly they would have sent some questions. It's likely that that is what's driving this section with Paul. And he's going to address at least a couple of them here and then we'll see other questions that maybe lead to instruction in later sermons. He says, now concerning, in verse nine, brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So it's possible that the first question that this fledgling church has asked the apostle Paul is, teach us more about love. Teach us more about the love that we're supposed to have as brothers and sisters in Christ, which is why he used the term brotherly love. This is, we get the word Philadelphia from, you've heard of that, right? The city of brotherly love. It comes from this word here in the Greek. This is, this is the love that we have not within a marriage, the love that we have not between us and God, but the love that we have for one another. That the church is supposed to love one another and do so well. And Paul says, I don't need to write to you about this subject. Now, he's going to say two reasons he doesn't need to write to them about this subject. And the first one is there in verse 9. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Paul says, you already know everything you need to know about love. What a great thing to be able to claim as a church, because you know that's not Paul's answer in other epistles that he writes in the New Testament. There are other places we could go in the New Testament where Paul felt it incumbent that he write about the necessity for brotherly love amongst the believers, because other churches were not doing that very well, but apparently this church was. And the first reason he says, I don't to give you any instructions here, is that God has taught you. Now, how has God taught them? Paul writes something similar with a little bit of explanation attached to it in his letter to the church at Ephesus. At the end of chapter 4 in the book of Ephesians, the beginning of chapter 5, we read this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, offering and sacrifice to God a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we get asked the question, how is it that Paul can say, God taught them to love one another? And we can ask this question, how has God taught us to love one another? Simply God taught us to love one another through Christ. There is no greater picture of love than that that Christ died for us, Sinners who had done nothing to earn it or deserve it. But the love of God was demonstrated for us that while we were still dead in our trespasses and sin, Christ died for us. This is how he taught love. Is he demonstrated, the greatest act of love in the history of the world is Jesus dying in your place. So we shouldn't have to ask, how do we love one another? We shouldn't have to wonder, should we love one another? We should just do what Paul says to the Ephesians, be imitators of God. Walk in love. Do what Christ did. And then he gives some ways to do that. Kind of if you work backwards through that passage, right? He says, put aside bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Let all of that be put away from you along with all malice. Now, if you're interested, uh, last year I preached through the book of Ephesians, and that that sermon's on our website, and I preached just one sermon here on love, and I'm going to need to continue here. You could go listen to that. So we break down every one of those words and think about how everything within the church outside of love is sinful. That when we have wrath and malice and anger and clamor and slander within the body, that every time that shows up, it's sinful. That the only way that we should respond to one another in every circumstance is love because God demonstrated love to us in Christ Jesus. And what is our goal of sanctification? To put off sin and put on Christ. So as we're putting on Christ, we love each other. And this is the call. And so Paul reminds this the Thessalonian, church, or the Thessalonian church of this fact that I don't need to tell you anything about love first because God has already told you everything you need to know. But the second reason he doesn't need to tell anything is in verse 10. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. The second reason is this, you're already doing it. And not only are you are doing it in Thessalonica, you're doing it so well that you are known for your love throughout Macedonia. This would be like saying that not only is Nanswin River loving one another here in this part of Hampton Roads well, but we love each other so well that it's, the, it's what defines us when other people in the state of Virginia think about our church. Could you imagine if that was what we were known for? Man, that church loves each other. This is what Paul says about this church. Isn't that incredible? He says, you are already doing this to the point that it is known throughout Macedonia. You're not only even just loving people within your congregation, well, you're loving the brothers throughout your area. Well, you're known for it. But even though they were known for it, even though this is something that they are doing that he says God himself has instructed you in, he still calls them to walk in it more and more. Think of the end of this verse, but we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. Verse 10 mirrors what we see at the beginning of this section in verse one, where Paul writes, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you have received from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And as we looked at that, last week here's what we said the process of sanctification is never done that we've never arrived that we're always seeking to do more that and then he uses that same language here specifically talking about the practice of love within the body and here's what we need to understand loving one another can never be put on autopilot it's not a set it and forget it type activity For us to love one another is going to take constant, clear thought and action on our part. And we never reach our final destination. I think of this, I truly do, as a loving church. You love my family well, you love the other leaders of our church well, you show us wonderful love and support. I also know that you love one another well. I know that people in this church are loved and cared for because of the great love that you have for one another. We see this play out most specifically in our small groups, but we also see it in other ministries and other connections that people have. You love each other well. I believe that is true about this church. If If I didn't believe it was true, I would have skipped this part. I wouldn't say that, but I believe it's true. But can I echo the words of Paul here? Brothers and sisters, do so more and more. Don't ever feel like we've arrived to an appropriate level of love within our congregation. Continue to grow in love for the brothers and sisters of Christ here in our church. That's how we walk together. First and foremost, in love. Then, Paul's attention turns to walking properly before outsiders, And he gives three highly practical commands. All of these have a high likelihood of affecting relationships outside of the church. They may affect relationships inside of the church. They certainly can. They may affect relationships in your home. They certainly can. But Paul's then going to rattle off some things rather quickly And then tell us that by doing these, we're ensuring that we're walking properly before outsiders. So let's see what these things are. And you're going to see some connections as we move through verse 11. First, he says, and so he's continuing in this same thought, right? To do some, love each other more and more. But his his focus is going to shift from internal to external and says, and to aspire to live quietly. Of all of the things in this sermon today that I think Christians in our culture need to hear, it's these short little words. Aspire to live quietly. That word aspire means set it as your goal. Put this out in front of you always, that this should always be in your mind. Am I living a quiet life? Now, I want to start small and work big if we can for just a minute. So let's just think the easiest way, the most simple thing we can apply to our lives as it relates to living a quiet life is thinking about the words that come out of our mouths. And if there's any book that deals with the words that come out of our mouths in the Bible the most, it's probably the book of Proverbs. There are multiple Proverbs that talk about the tongue. And in Proverbs 21, 23, we read, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Now, the opposite of a quiet life is a life that's always in trouble. It's a life that's always stirring up nonsense and always finding themselves in the midst of drama. And, and oftentimes these people look around and are like, I never know how I end up in here. Can I tell you if that's you, how you often end up in there? Can I just pastor you for a minute? You often end up in there because you don't control what you say. And listen to what the scripture says. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Now that's not to say, remember, I preached through Proverbs a few years ago. said Proverbs are, uh, Proverbs are um, temporary in their application of our lives with, with eternal promises connected to them, right? So this doesn't mean that just if you go through life without ever saying anything, you won't ever have any trouble. But in general, this principle applies that much trouble can be avoided. There's a lot to say about living a quiet life simply by keeping your mouth shut. At least knowing when to. Because part of living a quiet life is actually knowing when to say what to say. And we live, the way, the reason I said these few little words, these few little words here are probably the most applicable section to modern American Christianity is because we live in a day when anybody can voice anything internationally. You have at the tips of your fingers the ability to communicate, not just with people in your home as it was for centuries and millennia, not just with people in your community through some sort of like, you know, synagogue type first century Jewish synagogue type meeting place once a week, but you can put stuff out in the, you know, digital atmosphere that people can literally see around the globe. And boy, have we embraced that power. (laughs) And far too often, Christians need to apply the simple instruction to keep your mouth shut. So here's a question that I ask. You may notice, I I don't comment on social media often. I, I don't put stuff, I try to talk about our church some, Occasionally, I'll talk about college football. So here's a question that I ask. And, and I'm going to say, I ask myself this question and nine times out of 10, I get an answer that says, keep your mouth shut. Does what I'm about to say make this situation better? If it doesn't, I just keep my mouth shut <laughs> because I've learned to apply, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. It's just not worth it. Now, I told you we're gonna start small and work big because there's some indication in the text from from the words that Paul uses and the way that that word was used throughout Roman culture and the way he uses it in other places that there is, I'm about to meddle here, get ready for it, but it's in the text. There's some indication at least that this is a command about political engagement. That when he says to live a aspire to live a quiet life, make it your goal to live a quiet life. What Paul is talking about is the level of political engagement that some in this church had aspired to. That what they wanted, remember that word aspire is important. What they wanted was they wanted their way culturally. They wanted their way politically. They wanted to have authority. They wanted to have a voice. And Paul begins to correct them. he says, aspire, make your your greatest aspiration to live a quiet life. And you say, okay, now wait, where does Paul connect living a quiet life with political ambition? You ask the question, let me answer it for you. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, for all then I urge that supplication, prayer, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And you say, wait, this is about prayer. Hold on for kings and all who are in high position. So in the verse that Paul calls us to pray for kings and people in high position, so this in our culture would be presidents, governors, senators, congressmen, people like that. Pray for these people, but notice what he says, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul connects our relationship with civil authorities to living a quiet life and even says our prayer for them should be that we just get to live a peaceful and quiet life. Now, this isn't to say that we shouldn't engage in public discourse. This isn't to say that Christians who run for office in our cultural way of thinking about it. Back then, nobody ran for things, right? But in our culture, running for office or seeking to have some sort of influence, it's not to say that those people are not seeking to have a quiet life. But the question is, what is our ambition? What is our goal? What's that thing out in front of us all the time? And unfortunately, I believe many Christians have held out in front of them the goal of public discourse above what the scripture commands. So I'm not saying don't engage, I'm not saying don't vote, I'm not saying don't run if you feel the Lord is prompting you to do that. But always run it through the filter of, is this still going to allow me to follow the command of scripture and aspire to live quietly? You say, okay, well, maybe this isn't for everybody. Make, notice the connection the author of Hebrews makes about living quietly. In Hebrews 12, 14, he says, strive for peace with everyone. This is in that same vein of living a quiet life and for the holiness without which no one will see God. The author of Hebrews makes a direct connection between peace with everyone and holiness. Why? Because it is very hard to progress in our sanctification when we are constantly stirring up strife. If we're constantly looking for the next political battle, we're constantly looking for the next thing that we're gonna stick our foot into and make our voice heard and not care what anybody else says about it if that's always what's on our mind, instead of holding out in front of us the goal of living a quiet life, listen to me, we're always going to struggle with our sanctification because we're gonna get pulled back into the troubles that rage in this world because ultimately our priorities are messed up. Christianity in America has made an idol out of politics. We've specifically made an idol out of American politics. And we've set that up as the goal. And Paul says, no, aspire to live a quiet life. Number two, and mind your own affairs. (laughs) There's no way to say this other than to say, mind your business. (laughs) I, I don't know a single parent that has not said those words a million times but we are so bad at taking our own advice so often. Mind your own affairs. Apparently word gets back to Paul from whoever delivers first Thessalonians that they were still not doing this very well. And so he reiterates the point in second Thessalonians chapter three, he says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So even after the first letter, this is still an issue there in that church. Now, there are some that would say that this is an issue in the church because there were some wealthy Christians who were just paying for everybody to live and nobody was out working, so all everybody had to do was to be a busybody. There are some scholars that believe that this is actually a... a, uh, eschatological fallacy that they believe Jesus is coming back any day. Some even believed it had slipped into the church a false doctrine that Jesus had already come back. And so because of that, they just saw secular work as not being important. Regardless of what the driving force behind the error within the church is, the correction is the same. Mind your own business. (laughs) It's not hard. You know, it is completely free to just mind your own business, (laughs) to not have to stick yourselves. And this goes hand in hand with living quietly, doesn't it? To just not insert yourself in everybody else's problem and everybody else's discussion and everybody else's drama. You, you You really can just go about life and go, God, I don't have to go get involved in that right now. And I think if you practice that enough, you'll say, man, praise Jesus, I don't have to go get involved in that right now, that he's called me to it. Now, some Christians will take this and overapply it. And will say, oh, Bible says for me to mind my own business. So you do you, I'll do me. I'm not gonna worry about you, you're not going to worry about me. And that is anathema to the Christian religion that is presented to us in the New Testament. So no, we don't get to take this to mean you know, the command to mind your own affairs and don't be a busybody. We don't get that to mean that we're not connected to one another. We can't use this as an excuse to not care for others. Philippians chapter two, Paul instructs the church there, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So there is a line that we walk that says, I am looking out for your interest, but I'm not being a busybody. Do you see the difference there? And I think we ought, if we're just honest with ourselves, we, we can tell the difference between genuinely caring and engaging in a situation where we are seeking to help people in a way the Bible has told us to, and we're inserting our nose in a place that it doesn't belong. And so we need to be corrected in this and to, and to see the difference and to know the difference. And if you don't ever get involved in people's lives because you just want them to do them and you to do you, I hear the correction Don't lean on this scripture as your crutch. But if you are constantly failing to mind your own business, recognize that it is detrimental to your sanctification and to your witness in public. The third one, verse 11. And to work with your hands as we instructed you. The solution to busybodiness, I don't know if that's a word, but the solution to not living a quiet life and to minding your own business is often just, hey, why don't you go Work hard. <laughs> Why don't you just go work with your own hands? And this again is in the context of walking before outsiders. And Paul gives this instruction: you know, aspire to live quietly, make that your goal. Don't be a busybody. Mind your own business and work hard. Sometimes people will say, you know, the Bible's not very practical. You can't read this and not just hear practicality just dripping off the page. This is great advice. I don't know why you came here today. You may have just came here today because somebody brought you and you have no intention whatsoever of following Jesus. I, I at least hope that this will appeal to you in a way that draws you to the hope that we find in the gospel. You say, well, how would practical advice about minding your own business and and, you know, living a quiet life and working hard, we recognize that the Bible has good things to say to us. And when we recognize the Bible has good things to say to us, then we can also recognize maybe the Bible has the most important thing in all the world to say to us. Now, for the Christians in the room, let me make that connection in the inverse. You're working hard at work and minding your own business, living a quiet life is one of the greatest testimonies to the gospel that you can make. Can I just say to you that people at your job don't wanna hear what you have to say about Jesus if they think you're lazy. People at your job don't wanna hear what you have to say about Jesus if they think you're a gossip. People at your job don't wanna hear what you have to say about Jesus if you run your mouth all the time. Because people are watching those things which is why Paul says in verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. People are watching you and lost people are watching the things that are important to them. And the things that are often important to them are things like work ethic, honesty, that somebody does what they say they're going to do, that they are who they say they are going to be. And these are the practical guidances that Paul gives to us here in this passage for walking properly among outsiders. Are we doing that? In the book of Colossians, I mean, this is a constant theme as Paul writes to the churches. He says in Colossians 4, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Listen. If people are offended by the gospel message, it's because the scripture says they're going to be. And, and that's, that's been the way that it has been since Jesus ushered in the new covenant for us, that there are going to be people in the world who are directly offended by the truth of the gospel. Paul leans on that earlier in this chapter when he says, if you disobey this, you're disobeying the words of God, not the words of men. So there are going to be things in scripture that are offensive to people. But I would think that what Paul is saying in both in 1 Thessalonians 4 and there in Colossians chapter 4 is don't let your life, Be that thing that is offensive. Don't let your work ethic and your loose tongue, your inability to mind your own business, don't let those things stand in the way of our gospel witness because we are called to walk before outsiders in a way that points them to the gospel of Jesus. So what? We demonstrate the sanctifying power of the gospel in the way we walk among each other and the world. Bring this back to the main point that's being made in this section of the letter. The way you walk is your sanctification. It's putting off sin and putting on Jesus. And we are called as believers to walk in a certain way. And let me make it abundantly clear. I want to use a passage to help us with this. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you before I tell it to you. You ready? You ready? Not only are we called and expected in scripture as believers to walk in a certain way, but the only reason we're able to do that is because God has made us able by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to do it. You can't do this on your own, but God has made you able to love and to live peaceably and to mind your business and to work hard for the sake of the gospel. He's made you able to do that. One chapter over in Colossians 3, where we were just in Colossians 4, Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hear me today, church, if you are hidden in Christ with God, then you have a higher calling and purpose. We seek that which is not of this world because we have been changed, we've been made new, we've been transformed. So because of that, we've also been empowered by God's grace in our lives through the indwelling Holy Spirit that we no longer walk as we used to. But we've learned, just as a child, little by little, step by step, fall by fall, to walk in love with one another, and to walk in a way that we gain an audience with outsiders so that we can then speak wise words of faith into their lives. So examine today how you are walking and recognizing that God has given you, believer, the power to walk in him. He is bringing you along and you're not there yet in any of these things and I'm not there yet in any of these things, but little by little, slowly, slowly, God is making us able and making us more in the image of his son. And outsiders see this and some it will earn the ability for us to then say, the greatest news the scripture has for you is that Jesus died in your place so that you too may live. And so maybe you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus. That is the message for you, that Jesus died in your place, my friend, so that you may live. Let's pray together. God, we ask for your help now because we know we cannot walk this way on our own. We know our sin nature is drawn towards strife and it is drawn towards having the last say, and it's drawn towards stepping into other people's business and being lazy, whatever it is for us. Maybe it's one or more of these things. Maybe it's all of them for some. But you, oh God, make a way for us to be radically transformed and to walk your way. Help us to do that. May the sinner that hears this today repent and believe knowing that Jesus died in their place so that they may be saved. We thank you for that good news. In Jesus' name, amen.